glad that you guys are here today. And um, you know, I'll kind of change some of the formatting to work well with a, a group the size yesterday. I did the same presentation in the afternoon, and um, I think we were able to accomplish a lot of good things. So thanks for uh, the introduction. And maybe uh, as we're a, a tight group here, just um, so everybody can know each other and kind of the roles that we have, and then I can kind of adjust based on kind of what the roles that you guys serve, that would be great. So, mm -hmm. um, Tim Lukes, uh, Legacy Christian School. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just um, I'm middle school science uh, in algebra, and then uh, one quarter of my time I serve as instructional leader, where I work on schedules, professional development, teaching for transformation, technology. Sounds like, Sounds like you do a lot in that quarter. Yeah. 25%. So there we go. <laughs> I'm Cindy Grote. I am the director of teaching and learning at Dutton Christian School, so we're in a loose association with each other. Um, yeah, so one of the administrators there, so I do teaching and learning. She, um, yeah, everything related to that curriculum development. My role has changed a little bit this year, which I'm very thankful for, so I don't do it. As many things as Tim does at his building. Teaching for Transformation is a big part of what we do too. Uh, Trevor Zonnefeld, I'm the principal at Lafayette Christian, um, the only administrator at Lafayette Christian. Um, and so we're a lot of different hats and a lot of different things going on. Well, great. And we know Mark as well. So, um, you know, I serve an administrative role along you, side you guys. and. Um, I, I guess just giving a little bit of a, a kind of air, kind of more of the presentation that direction. Um, just a little bit of just kind of a backstory. I uh, moving from the classroom into um, an admin position. This is my third year at Highland Christian, and was just so blessed to come into a school. If any of you are familiar with Bob Payne, um, he was a former superintendent at, at uh, Chicago Christian Schools. Um, he came to Highland Christian as a startup, um, like a, not a startup, uh, that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, it's kind of like a kickstart. The school was struggling with some of the academic performance. The state uses an A to F grading scale, and the, the school was, had came out, this is the first time we had it, we came out as a grade C. And that was kind of like, whoa, you know, like, we thought we were doing so well, we thought that this was, you know, we were on the right trajectory, no, we've got a lot of work to do. And Bob had used and implemented the PLC process at Chicago Christian Schools in his tenure, first working at the high school, raising ACT scores, working as the superintendent um, K through 12. And, and Bob had come in and really infused, um, in, infused a program that was really struggling and really changed the complete mindset of the school. And so coming in, I, a lot of my background, even like within a lot of my doctoral studies is more school finance, HR, business management, working with our foundation. And I've just been so excited to be able to grow so much in the realm of working within a professional learning community and the complete mindset. It's a complete educational mindset um, that has been a change. And I will never think about education the same way again. And, and I hope that there are some things today that we can chat about, um, that we can have a dialogue back and forth about things that um, may really counter some of the practices that you have. Um, on the forefront, I will share as a school, we are K through eight standards based. Um, it's a total focus on learning. It's not a focus on behavior. 
And that's the key that maybe I, you can walk away with today is thinking about, you know, what are some of the behaviors that we have within our buildings that kind of counteract student learning? And so I'll share some of the examples of that, and we'll do a couple of activities together. Um, kind of the format for the goals that I would have for today is that you'll be able to uh, uh, you'll be able to know what the four questions of PLC are. That's kind of the basis of what we do, and in our teams of what we work on. And, and just so you know, at the end, I do have a Bitly um, that I'll share that you can take a snapshot of um, that that you can have access to this. Um, so the four questions, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on talking about what are the four questions, how do our teams really dive into you know, what these four questions are and what it means for student learning. Um, I hope that there's going to be a lot of things that I cover on a surface level, but hopefully spark your, in, spark your ideas of like, oh, what about this, what about this? So I'm not trying to go a mile deep with a lot of content today. I'm looking to go pretty broad and get in a lot of different buckets. Um, so hopefully one, one or two of these things you can say, oh, I really want to run with this, I want to learn more, and I could give you some ideas of some action steps. And then ultimately, just to defend the PLC process. And defending the PLC process is something that, like preparing for this presentation, it, it really, there was nothing to prepare because it was more so just the complete philosophy um, engagement. So, of your schools right now, how many of your schools you would say, we kind of use a PLC framework you think? One, two, three. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Uh, could you tell us who you are and where you're from? Jason Felder from Calvary Middle School in Randall. Cool. Well, welcome. Um, so these are the three objectives that we have for today, and I hope you can run with that. Um, I told you a little bit about our school. Um, our school serves just under 500 kids in Northwest Indiana. Um, this is a picture of my two kids here. We had our daughter. So uh, this is a little, this is funny. So um, both of our kids were due, uh, due on June 20, which uh, made when they, we found out we were pregnant, uh, the first day of CEA both the year. So I uh, told my wife uh, yesterday morning, I said, is there anything we should talk about today? And she said, not this year. So uh, maybe next year you can see me and we might have another kiddo on the way. But um, this is just part of our, our teaching staff here and a part of our school. We're about 20 minutes outside of Chicago and um, really blessed as, a, as kind of more administrators in the group. Um, Indiana is a, is a choice state and we work with a very diverse student population. Um, the two largest school communities that we pull from is the highest performing school in the state and the lowest performing school in the state. And uh, one, of, one of those schools um, within their district, they'd have 300, 350 kids that take the state assessment, and not one student would be at levels of proficiency in the entire school, K through five. Um, so we work with a really diverse student population, not only from a free and reduced level, um, but also from an academic and schematic background. So it really created a strong necessity. Um, sometimes within our Christian schools, we pull students of affluent families, and we take that for we don't need to take the professional steps that we need to to provide the best services for all students. So it's been an absolute blessing to be at Highland Christian. Um, I, I'm not going to go into our full story here because I, I last yesterday when I did this session, we were... We ran short on time, but you could do this on your own if you wanted to. Uh, these are hyperlinks in of just kind of our story 
Um, you could watch that video. And one of the things that when we made this recruitment video, because we, we don't want teachers that work in silos. Like, we don't want this heroic teacher who goes into fifth grade and says, I'm going to be the awesome fifth grade teacher. I'm going to close my door, and all my ideas are mine, and it's going to be great. We don't want those people at our school. So we um, frame our whole hiring process around what we want to see within a professional learning community. So um, that's you know the, the framework of our questions that we ask candidates. It's um, the framework of how we even post job descriptions. Um, and we've had candidates before that are I, I think would be good teachers in a lot of schools. And we said, this is the model that we use. And we are, we're fully in. It's not like, you might need to do this a little bit. It's like, this is an expectation for a whole staff. And there's some people that say, oh, I, I don't really want to do that. I just kind of want to be a silo teacher. And we say, well, then this really isn't the school the school for you. And that's, that's OK. But you just kind of need to know what you're get, getting into. So um, and then under the uh, story, that links to um, the All Things PLC website. Highland Christian is the only non-public school in the state of Indiana with um, with the model PLC status. This is not like a cookie cutter, like a participation award. It, it's solely rooted in student improvement um, and very tough data. Um, I was talking with an administrator from a, a very high-performing school yesterday from um, from from Illinois, and he had said, you know, hey, we've, we're a blue ribbon school, but we are denied our model PLC status. You know, what do we need to do to to get this. So this is something that it's, it's just not a, like our staff is so proud of this because it's rooted in, in student data and growth. Um, one of the things that I'd like for you to do um, is if you have uh, just a, a, some scratch paper, if you could write down what your mission and your vision is at your school. And that might be, yesterday it was harder for some, and if you need to look it up, that's okay. Um, but write down, if, if at least it's the gist, write down what your mission and your vision is. So take 30 seconds to do that here. mission and vision. And I'd like for you to read it. Look for things that are the same as your mission and vision and look for things that might be a little bit different. similar to your mission and vision that you wrote down? Something that you point out that you say, yeah, this kind of aligns with, with our school, with what we have to say. What, what's something that's similar? The word serving. Serving? Okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. I was going to say seeing and serving are two of the big ones. Okay. Your vision is almost 
we are our mission statement. Okay. So ours is nurture the heart with biblical truth, put the mind for academic excellence, and impact world progress. <clears throat> okay, so let's go back to the second part. You read that one more time. So after the nurturing, the next part. Equip the mind through academic excellence. Through equip the mind through academic excellence. So there's a faith component to your mission vision. There's an academic piece, right? These things go, can't, you can't just say, hey, we're a nice place. It's kind of like a Sunday school. There's academic expectations, and we're not a public school because we integrate our faith into all that we do, right? So they go hand in hand. Um, what about a difference that you would see or something that you would, you kind of, the word sum. In both the vision and in the mission. Right here? Mm -hmm. What struck you about that word? Um, it, it's, well, quite honestly, it's more realistic than most vision and mission statements that I see. Because we, we, have, we strive to have all be, for our school, uh, prepared as Christ followers and kingdom builders, which is seeing the power of creation, sensing order in a world saved by Christ and serving God. But we're striving for all, and we don't, but reality, we don't, have, we never have all of the students, because how do you assure that all of the students are going to be able to do that? There's a partnership between the school and the student, you know? So I see where you're going, and that's one of the challenges we face. And so this actually is not our mission and vision statement. There's something that is tweaked. What is tweaked in that? I think you, you caught it. What was that word? Well, I said partnership. But part oh. What is this word replaced with with some? All students will be equipped. And that's the question that we come back to is, you know, in our minds, and this is the challenge we face, is how do we ensure that all students succeed at high levels? And that's where, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about like behaviors that we see with students and how we separate those out with learning. And the question is, how do we get this word to all? And in our in our mission statement, and I agree with your statement. Is is you know when we look at the end of the day of where our goals are at, do we see any school that every single student is meeting those goals? There's probably not a school out there that you would say every single student in our building is reaching levels of, that they're all at proficient levels, they're all at our, our, our standard goals that we have. But as a school, what is the stance that we say that we will ensure all students will get there? And it's our job to take that on and say, well, you know, I know that Carol's mom and dad, you know, they don't support her, they don't help her. Well, just too bad for Carol, right? We we're going to say, no, as educators, what is our role in serving these students, these families, to ensure that they all reach high levels, whether they live in a million-dollar house in Munster or they live in a house in Gary that the roof is caving in. It doesn't matter what their background is. What are we going to do in, to ensure that all students learn at high levels? And so that's one of the pieces where, you know, we really have to counter that as educators, and we, we need to make sure that, you know, when we talk about what the ceiling level is for students, that we don't set our, our ceiling for this, for a student here, for one kid, and the ceiling here for another. 
and, and how do we counter that and how do we make sure that we're um, ensuring best practice. Um, I'm going to show you a, a picture here of my son. This was from last week. Um, he was up in Kalamazoo originally. My wife is from the Kalamazoo area here and worked at Kalamazoo Christian and, and loved the school. It's a great school community. And um, he was, he's in preschool now. And I'll tell you what, for those of you that um, Trevor is baby on the way, um, the best thing ever is being able to have your kids ride to school with you. And this is the first year I've been able to do that. And um, he rides to school with me one, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And a big week ago here, he was riding to school with me. I said, you know, he just doesn't really sound right. Things aren't going well. And, and um, I called my wife. I said, hey, why don't you pick him up from, from school? And um, school hadn't started yet. And, and she came and picked him up. And he progressively over time got to the point where he was... He was almost nonverbal, and then my wife called me in a panic and said, hey, I left him at, at Janelle's house, and he's, he's hardly breathing. And as a parent, you're like, am I ever going to see my kid again? You know, your mind is, is racing, right? And so um, when we think about, you know, our kid, we, we want the best for our kid, right? We're going to do the best that we can. I'm going to read this section here from... Um, this is an excerpt from Taking Action, um, RTI, um, by Mike, Mike Mattis. Uh, virtually all professional learning organizations endorse PLCs. When implemented well, the PLC process is the best way to build the learning-focused culture, collaborative structures, instructional focus, and assessment information necessarily to successfully respond when students don't learn. At a time in which our students' lives depend on educators, utilizing practices proven to be most effective. Should we allow professional educators to disregard the overwhelming evidence and claim to outdated procedures? Would this be acceptable in any other profession? I want for you to think about my little Ezra here, my little guy. Imagine if you were diagnosed with a life-threatening illness and, you're, and you asked your doctor to identify the best course of action. In response, your doctor says, there's a treatment process that's based on over 80,000 studies. It's the most effective cure to your illness. It is proven to be multiple times more powerful than traditional treatments used throughout most of the past century. Additionally, the most successful hospitals in the whole world use this practice, and virtually all medical organizations endorse the treatment. How would you respond? Where can I start? That's where I was at last week. What do we got to do? Where can we get them? What's going to be the best thing? Now imagine if your doctor knows the best professional consensus and the best possible treatment for your illness, yet disregards it and utilizes a less outdated procedure. You'd be outraged. We would consider such action, actions as professional malpractice, professionally unethical, and grounds for removal from the field. Knowing what we know today, how to best respond when students struggle, there is no debate. Implementing professional learning communities is the right framework. I'd like to show you, um, there's one other quote I really like here. Um, but when a preponderance of evidence proved that a particular process, protocol, procedure is most effective, professionals are not merely invited to use it, but instead expected to conform to these technical and ethical standards. And sometimes as educators, Dr. Anthony Muhammad, he's a great guy. Do you know uh, Dr. Muhammad? Um, 
We are so blessed to have him uh, come, and if you've ever been to a PLC Institute before, he's really big on the PLC process, but he really specializes in um, decision-making, culture, and he talks about the hierarchy of decision-making, and the lowest level of decision-making comes with personal preference or personal opinion. And a lot of times in education, we make our decisions based on what our personal opinion is. Oh, you know, that's, I don't like that idea. You know, I tried that once and it didn't work. Um, and as we increase, we look at, okay, are there case studies? Is there a meta-analysis? Um, to, to really decide how we put practices into place. And so the question for, you know, a professional learning community, the question is why not? Um, and when we look at high-performing schools and high-impact schools versus low-impact schools, it, it's very straightforward. Um, do you want your kids to be successful? Do you want your kids to be winners and achieve at high levels, or don't you? And I think everyone in the room would say, we're in education not because we want the summer off, or nobody gets the summer off, but because we want kids to learn, and we love and we care about these kids so much. So when we look at teams, we're going to talk about teams versus groups in a moment. High, there's high-impact schools and low-impact schools. Okay, there's not a huge variance between the two. As teams, do we set norms and goals? 91% of high-impact schools do, 54% don't, or for, for low-impact schools do. Do we provide training in the realm of how to do this well? 96% of high-impact schools do, 23 don't. Building common formative assessment within our collaborative teams. Are we focused on the standards and are we infusing what our expectation is into that common formative assessment? Have we built a guaranteed curriculum? These are the skills all kids will learn. And regardless of whether I have Tim or Trevor as my teacher, I know that that expectation is the same and it's not based on, well, Tim really likes to teach this, so you're going to learn this if you have him for seventh grade math, and if you have Trevor, you're going to learn something a little bit different in, in eighth grade. Oh, well, good luck, you know. It's that guaranteed and viable curriculum. Do we gather evidence and we look at it in the correct way? And then do we go by student and by standard? Um, Rick DeFore um, is kind of the mastermind of this whole PLC process, and he makes a really good case for why PLC. And um, it's a four-minute clip. I'm going to show that to you here, and then we'll kind of move forward together. <coughs> For those who question uh, why we should have professional learning communities, I think uh, the answer is uh, relatively simple. There's never been greater consensus about what it's going to require uh, of educators in order to improve student learning in all of their schools. Um, Virtually all of the leading educational researchers in North America and all of our professional organizations have agreed that our best hope for improving schools is to focus on developing the capacity of people within the school. There's just been an international study done by the McKinsey Group by Sir Michael Barber where they looked at the highest performing school systems in all of the world. And they said that the one thing that those systems had in common was an understanding that a system can only be as good as the people within it. And so in those high-performing systems, there was a conscious effort made to develop the capacity of those people to understand that the only way we're going to improve schools is by improving the quality of the instruction the students receive every single day through the collective efforts of their teachers and, and school leaders. So um, 
to those who would uh, ask the question, why PLCs? Um, you know, I would ask, why not? Uh, what else is out there that has such universal consensus in terms of its power to make a difference in the lives of students? The biggest obstacles that are interfering with schools moving from traditional schools to professional learning communities aren't really uh, a lack of resources or, or some of the other external factors that we might point to. The biggest obstacle is overcoming our own traditions and the mythology that persists in education, mythology that says things like the way to improve schools is by hiring heroic individual teachers who close their door and make a difference in the lives of their students uh, and are sort of indifferent to what else is going on around the school. The mythology that says the real purpose of schooling is merely to give students the opportunity to learn rather to ensure that they learn. So there are some long-standing traditions in American education that we must confront and we must overcome them if we are going to succeed in becoming professional learning communities and making a difference in the lives of our students. There are now over 150 different schools on the All Things PLC website and every one of them represents a tremendous success story. It's hard to identify a single um, story that uh, stands out. But if I had to pick one, I'd, I would probably go with the school district in Sanger, California, which is one of the first districts in California to go into program improvement and come under state sanctions. Uh, led by the superintendent, Mark Johnson, who was recently named the National Superintendent of the Year by AASA, the district began to implement the PLC process district-wide. They adopted a, a mantra of no blaming the kids, what can we, the educators, do in order to create the conditions that will help our students learn at higher levels? There were certain things that were expected to happen in all of the schools. Teachers were expected to collaborate, to develop a guaranteed curriculum, to monitor student learning through common assessments, to have plans of intervention when students were struggling, and to have all of the educators throughout the system help one another learn in order to be more effective in whatever their respective responsibilities were, whether it was teaching or leading the building or leading the district. Uh, the results have been nothing short of phenomenal. Uh, it's one of the uh, highest achieving districts in California in terms of the progress that it's made over the last four or five years. And uh, Michael Fullen, who's looked at effective school systems all around the world, Pick Sanger as one of four school systems in the world that he wanted to highlight in a video of successful district-wide implementation of school improvement. So there are many, many stories that warm our hearts and keep us inspired and motivated to continue doing our work. But uh, Sanger is, is one that's uh, particularly touching. Uh, they have over 80% poverty, 80% minority, and yet every year student achievement is improving in that district, in every school in the district. It's a wonderful story. You don't have access within your school to like Global PD, which is a resource through Solution Tree. Um, it's a very cost-effective um, resource for school leaders to have um, with just excellent resources where um, you can pull that really uh, attributes well to what your teams are working on. So um, I, I'd encourage that and you know you can use your title resources to do that. Before we jump into the four questions, um, we're going to do a short activity and 
And for this, um, I'm going to show an image on the screen. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to try to memorize the image. And then after the 30 seconds, I'm going to ask for you to write the image. You need to write it out, okay? Um, and I'm going to, there's going to be a couple other directions before that. So take the 30 seconds, start now. someone next to you and together as a group you're going to come together and write out what you saw. I'm going to see how you did. So come together, work as a group. Seconds. Okay, check how you did. Uh, go back and see how many letters you got in the right spot.
Okay, right. I got mine. now and as you think about as instructional leaders teacher think about how you need to spell out these expectations for your team it needs to be very clear if it's not you're not going to get the result that you want so um, after each of the four questions I would encourage you these are like if there's one thing where it's like you could walk away with and commit the four questions to memory that would be like the best thing ever um, in that video that we had, um, that we put together, the, the group that put it together, Rhoda is their name, and they came in and after the fifth teacher that they interviewed, they said, can you send us somebody else who's gonna say something different? And we said, well, not really, you know, because there's that high level of common language that everyone's developed, and if you can start to commit those four questions to your common language, that would go a long way within your teams to think about what are the things that we should be doing within our collaborative work. So the first question is, what do we want our students to know? And, and that, that's pretty, pretty basic. Um, but it's something that we kind of skip over that step as we give a lot of, and I, I'm a strong, we're not looking to do a scripted curriculum, right? Teachers bring their unique gifts and talents to the classroom, and it has to be infused in. But when we look at what do we want students to know, we need to know what the standards are, and we need to be able to unpack those to then say, what is the level? I can't go to one class and expect this and go to the other and expect this. There needs to be a common understanding of what that level is. Um, a lot of times we start with, hey, I'm starting this lesson, hey, we'll, or this unit, let's see how things go, and then I'll make the assessment at the end. At the end. It's like, no, it's backwards design, right? We're gonna start with the assessment and say, this is where we need our students to get to, and how are we going to be able to ensure that they all get to that level? Um, at Highland Christian, one of the things that we do is um, is looking at kind of this, how many of your schools, this may be a good question, so I can know where to go from this, how many of your schools actively are very engaged in the state standards? One. Moderately or not at all? Moderately. Moderately, okay. 
And so that's something that we've spent a lot of time going through in unpacked standards. Is that something that you guys have done at, at Granville? Have you guys done anything with unpacking standards before, or is that kind of a new term for you guys? We have in some areas. Yeah. Okay. Not across the board. Exactly. Okay. And so um, one of the things that I, I really appreciated was I was always kind of like a, a Bloom's guy, and I was never really exposed to Webb's depth of knowledge. Um, and I'll pass out um, just a handout here. Um, you can keep this, and this is, has been a helpful tool um, for us within our conversations of, of looking at our standards and unpacking those standards and looking and saying, oh, and I'll just show an example, we don't need to go through. Um, so this is an eighth grade social studies standard. We're going to explain and evaluate examples of the domestic and international interdependence throughout the United States history. So as a team, we look down, we sit down and say, okay, what are the verbs? That specifically ties to the depth of knowledge, right? It says this is where the level of knowledge that we want to ensure that kids get to. For us, we use for instructional purposes, if it's like a two, kind of a three in level of depth of knowledge, we always kind of round up to hit a higher level for the instructional purpose um, so we can ensure that if our student fully isn't at that reach and that rigor, then they're still at a good spot where the state standards are. So we, as a team, we go through and we say, okay, let's identify the verbs, in this case, explain and evaluate. Okay, explain and evaluate, depth of knowledge two, depth of knowledge three, and then what is the skill? And as a team, then, we have that conversation, so everybody knows this is a skill that we're going to teach, and then we have that discussion about, hey, what are the error patterns that we what do the kids know from before? What are the things that we've run into in the past? Um, so it brings a lot of commonality into what we're actually teaching. And from this, we can go back and as a school, we've identified power standards for all of our grade levels. So when a student leaves my fifth grade classroom, these are the skills that they will learn. And if they did not learn them, that, that's going to be really problematic for them next year. If they can't write a complete sentence after they leave, second grade, are they going to be able to write a five-paragraph um, expository response in third grade? No. And so we look at what are those, what are those standards that they have to know, they're, they're the required, not the nice-to-knows. An example of a nice-to-know is an onomatopoeia. When is the last time that you've ever professionally had to know what an onomatopoeia is? Never. Could I even say what it is right now? And I've used this example many times. No, I couldn't. So it doesn't really matter. You know, what does matter is that I used a complete sentence when I put this presentation together. Um, and we look at what those skills are that have longevity. Can I ask a logistical question? Yes. Go ahead. Your PLCs or PLTs, you know, they all have different names. How do you group them? Like, is your second grade team a PLC? Yes. And then when it goes to middle school, if you have one social studies teacher or who is their PLC? Yes. So, and I will, um, I'll, okay. let, I'll jump, I'll address that now, and then I'll share a resource at the end. Okay. So within our junior high, we have... Our, we have a math and academic team that are working together. Um, there's a group of three folks that come together and work together. Outside of that, we have an ELA, um, a PLC, and that includes our history teacher, our science teacher, our ELA teacher, um, I did say Bible already, and they all come together and they are working on the ELA standards 
all year and infusing that in. So we focus on our math and our ELA as our power standards that we create in the junior high. So the one that you just showed was more of a social studies. That's a social studies. And so as individual teachers then, they're unpacking those standards because they're not saying like, hey, I'm not teaching, you know, although there is cross-curricular that we do quite a bit to pull in the standards, um, like for that history, for example, that history standard, that would be, they would say, okay, I know where I need to go. And then within their lesson planning, they would say, this is why I'm going, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it gives direction to what a lesson plan would be and where they need to be at. So um, there are, there's a good conversation about singletons. Those are called singletons within schools where I'm the only one who does this. What do we do? And that's one example. And, and I'll show an example. And there's a, a really nice resource by... Um, Aaron, I'm sure of his last name, the picture's on the last slide, where it's like a 60, 70 page, it's a super easy read, and it's all about singletons, and how can singletons best work in professional learning communities. But we focus on math and ELA standards, and everybody supports those within the school. And that's like, so our junior high, like this is like the most exciting thing that, so the state average for the, um, for iLearn, our state assessment is like, 38% level of proficiency for the whole state. Um, and it's, it's a crazy, crazy low number on how rigorous the test is. You basically need to be 65th, 70th percentile to test at levels of proficiency. And so to see in our junior high, everybody working on these ELA standards, and everybody, they're using the common form of assessments, we see 85% of our 80% uh, of our kids that are at levels of proficiency in ELA in our junior high, it's because of this. They're all working towards the standards. So then when you're talking about the identification of power standards, there, do you have any power standards in like science and social studies? Or do you, we do. Just, you do still have? So every class, they have their power standards and we have them posted in every room and the teachers are when they're saying, hey, this is the learning objective and it ties to this power standard. Okay. And so we're focused on what are the power standards and teachers have that in mind of, at the end of this year, these kids need to know these skills, and these are the must. And that's what we call the guaranteed and viable curriculum. Every kid will master these skills, and we're not gonna, um, we're gonna make sure that, that that occurs, and there's some systems in place that we do to do that. So, um, like for Indiana, we use blueprints. It's very helpful. Michigan doesn't have that um, through our state assessment. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, to add. Another layer of complexity in our small school, practically every teacher is a singleton. And in each classroom, every teacher has a split classroom. So, so I've got my work cut out for me. Right. And so, but at first, and the first step, and this is like a process that we've done over six years, you know, the first step is saying, let's look at our standards. You know, that's the first step is saying, do we know what we're supposed to teach? We start with the standards, and then the standards support it infuses through the curriculum as a tool. So, so that's that's another mindset. People say this is my curriculum. You know, I do lesson one, I do lesson two, I do lesson three. Well, with the curriculum that we have, um, you know, there's a lot of great tools that are in there. But there are times where we say, you know, this really isn't a standard, and it's not something important. So we're not teaching this lesson, and we're spending time on something that that has that length, that depth, and the breadth. So um, so you can kind of see, here's a, you know, a couple more standards. 
unpacked them. Let's look at the verbs. Let's look at the content. I mean, it's pretty simple. Um, it's just understanding about do we know what we're supposed to be teaching. Um, and I want to make sure I have time for questions at the end. Um, and we're already kind of running short. But um, one thing that I will share, and this is the other handout that I have, um, visible learning, you know visible learning? Okay. Um, it's just an absolute wonderful resource, and it just really helps align um, you know, what best practices are and what influences um, student learning. And you know, this kind of comes back to, are we using just kind of, oh, I think that will work, or are we using statistically shown um, data that says, yes, this actually is the best practice. Um, so Dr. Hattie, this is a meta-analysis of millions of studies that have been compiled together, millions of students, I should say. Um, and it's come down to an effect size where you're looking at negative effects, developmental, hey, I'm just a living, breathing person, teacher effects, and then the zone of desired effects. And this is where we're wanting to say our practices are lying in um, and where we really spend our time and our instructional energy. Um, if you look at this sheet that I just passed out, um, if you go, it's kind of small print, but if there's, it says classroom and then the next one says teacher, go down to where it's the second one down, teacher clarity, 0.75, super important. We're high in that, low, that, that area of zone of desired effects. Teacher credibility, estimates of achievement. Um, the highest, does anyone know what the highest one is by chance? Teacher efficacy. What is teacher efficacy? Our belief that all students will learn. And we don't always have that. You know, we come in with, hey, you know, this student, uh, this, they've struggled, they've got behavior issues, they've got, um, they, don't, they don't support, they've struggled in fourth grade, I've heard terrible things about from the fourth grade teacher about them. That is one of the highest impacts. And, and one of the things I appreciate so much about the PLC mindset and model is that it's all about all students will learn and what is my role as an educator to ensure that the students will learn. I'm going to keep rolling here for time. Um, question two, how do we know that they've learned it? Um, this boils down to our use of common formative assessment. As a team, we're coming together and we're saying, let's build our assessments together and when we get together and we actually look at the data, not just say, hey, um, you know, hey, Peggy, how'd your kids do? Oh, they did great. Oh, mine did too. Move on. No, it's let's actually look, what were the error patterns? What were the areas that we missed? Why is it that Peggy's kids did so well and my kids did not? And we taught the same lesson. And we have kind of a uh, homogenous group of kids that we would say are pretty comparable. So these things are important. Um, one of the things that we use heavily is the use of our, our map assessment. And I would really encourage schools to look at the four quadrant um, model, and, and this is the reason why. So this fifth, the, the four quadrants represent high growth, high achievement, that's the green. The orange is high growth, um, low performance, below the 50th percentile. Yellow, high performance, low growth, and then red, Low, low, um, low performance, low growth. We don't want people to bet, okay? Um, we want people in the green, orange, and then emerging in the yellow. Uh, and so um, this is a sampling of one of our eighth grade classes. And 
you know, when we, I look at this, you know, it's kind of easy, especially if you have a high-performing school or you're pulling from very affluent families to say, oh, look at this, these kids are all in the 70th percentile. Great. Well, what I love about this is this 50th percentile represents one, years of one year worth of growth. And you can see, okay, are our kids below trajectory right now in their growth? Or are they above trajectory on growing beyond one year in this grade level? Um, and we oftentimes, you know, as a school, we've, we deal with a lot of challenge, challenging situations where kids come to us two, three years below grade level. And we need to hold our standards, but we, need to, we, we can't catch them up unless we're, we're growing beyond the year. As a school goal, I listed this as um, the big, hairy, audacious goal, Jim Collins, um, if any of you are familiar. It's what's that big goal that we're going to set that we're going to say we're going to get there, and it's kind of our North Star. When we were the C school, we said, well, we want to be an A, right? Okay, we got the A, but how did we do that? We did that through setting a high goal that 70% of our students would be in the 70th percentile. So the 70th percentile represents a, a trajectory of a 24 on the ACT. Um, and so that's the marker that we said that's really college readiness, where we want kids to be at. So these are a couple of our homeroom classes. I just took a sampling. And you can see that um, this is within our primary department. You can see it's not all rainbows and sunshines, right? We have a group here in our second grade group that they are, it's a, it's a low class. But we're saying, how do we continue to push them towards <coughs> that, that high level of, uh, of growth? So all of our teachers know, hey, I've got the 70th percentile. I'm, 70% of my kids are going to be at the 70th percentile. That's my goal. I'm pushing towards that. And it is a big, area audacious goal. It's hard to reach. So right now, we're at, as a school, we're like 62%. We're working. It's hard. It's very hard. So um, so use of the common and summative assessment in our data. Um, I'm going to keep rolling here. Question three. How will we respond when some students do not learn the material? What are we going to do? Um, my biggest caution is that there's a lot of schools that try to pick up like a PLC process and they say, we're going to focus solely on our tier two and tier three instruction. And if you spend all, put all your apples in tier two and tier three instruction, you're not going to go anywhere because ultimately, in a PLC process, where are you getting your biggest bang for the buck? It's your tier one classroom instruction. So if we don't do tier one right, we shouldn't really even be bothering with tier two and tier three. Um, so building out good intervention supports within the classroom. Um, our, sc our school really struggled. We had great tier one, and then we really didn't have any tier two instruction all that it was like, you're in the classroom or you're in the discovery center. And it was like, well, we're letting kids get, like, they're falling so low that all of a sudden it's like, well, now you're bad enough that you can get this service. And it was like, no, we want to be tier two. We want a good tier two so we can get you back into tier one so you, we don't need to look at that. And so that was a problem that we really had to, to delve through. Um, pushing on our differentiated instruction. Um, so our school, I think I mentioned this, we, we are standards-based all the way through. Um, no A to F at all. And anything that's a power standard and an essential skill, if a student isn't meeting standards, we're reteaching, retesting. We, we don't do that for every single assessment or every single assignment, but if there's a power standard, we're reteaching, we're giving opportunity for students to 
uh, growing the skill and circling back around. And there are some parameters where it's not like, hey, you've been taking this, you've been working on this skill for 20 weeks and every time you take, the, you know, there, there's a point where we do need to move on and then we say, okay, what other systems do we need to support the child? But that's one thing that's really underutilized. And yeah. our standards are identified by your PLCs? Yeah, so our teams go through and say, these are the most essential standards for a kid to be successful in first grade to move to second. And I'd be happy if anybody wanted to see if, like, for, I'd be willing to share our, our um, power standards with anybody who wanted to see them. Um, so one of the pieces, and, and I'll just briefly touch on this here, is, um, well, actually, we'll do this instead. So we've got Uncle Sam, we've got the ACT, and we've got some street signs. Does anyone see anything in common with these? Anything that kind of jumps out. It's not really obvious, but the ACT is an assessment, right? What happens if you take the ACT and you don't like your score? You retake it. Uncle Sam, what if you get to the deadline and you're not ready yet? What do you do? To file your taxes. File an extension. File an extension. What about when we moved to Indiana and my wife took the road test or the driver's test on the computer and didn't know what the sign was, what the words were on each of these signs, and she failed it. What did she do? Retest. Retest it. Okay. So the reality of that, you know, we need to give zeros because it's going to prepare kids for the future, just really isn't a reality. And so that's one of the big, you know, shticks that a lot of people say is, well, I'm going to give this kid a zero and they're going to learn their lesson. Well, that's not really the reality of, of how learning occurs. Um, and so as a school, that's maybe one challenge that I'd like for you to think about, is thinking about, are zeros helping your students learn? Is it helping your building? And um, we don't really have even the option to give a zero because we're not standards-based. But you need to think about what supports can you put in place to ensure that all kids will learn. It's the same thing as skiing. This is my sister, my brother, my dad likes to barefoot ski. It's a ton of fun to watch or in slalom. You know, when you first learn to ski, most people don't get up the first time, right? It takes multiple times to try to get up skiing. But once you're up, you know how to do it forever. And it's the same thing with these skills. When we give kids a zero and say, well, you didn't do your homework assignment, you got a zero, move on, you know. We're not giving kids the opportunities for a variety of reasons, whether a kid's just lazy and doesn't want to do it, whether that he doesn't know how to do it, he or she, whether there's other issues going on. We need to say, how do we support that child and give them the right tools? One of the things that we've done within our junior high schedule is they're not self-contained, is we built in an intervention block that's designed for kids that don't learn it the first time or they need more support. So we have this power hour, which Sometimes we'll even have kids that work through lunch, so it's almost a full hour twice a week, where for kids that aren't meeting the standards, or number two, they, aren't, they have a behavior issue where they're not doing what they need to do, we will say, you will meet the standard, and we will ensure that you do this. And people ask often, well, do kids just try to play the system and say, well, I'm not going to do my homework, and I'm just going to do a power hour. Nobody wants to do that. The kids don't want to do that, and that has not been an issue for us. Um, Kind of another unique thing that we've done with our, our <coughs> this is just kind of more of a plug for something cool that I think 
things happening. And we've seen a lot of um, support within our students as we have a 25-minute block worked into this junior high schedule where we take all of our kids based on um, their math data. And so we'll look at what their the skill levels are. And so like you can see like these are kids based on their iLearn performance. Scan over so the names aren't on there. And you can see, okay, we've got kids that are approaching below at proficiency, and then at proficiency, above proficiency, through. And we divide these kids and have them work on math and ELA standards that are, that are at their instructional need. So we have kids, like one of our top groups is working on 10th grade ELA standards, and it's a 6th grade kid. So it's just kind of a creative way that we've been able to, to go about that. Um, I think we have three minutes left here, so I'll get to question question four. Um, question four: um, How do we extend the learning, or what do we, we say is what do you do if the kid already knows it before they got here? And that's where you need to really be conscious about how are we using our pretests, how are we looking at the depth of knowledge. So, like in our rubrics, like when we make rubrics for the kids, it's a four-point scale, three your meeting standards. Four, you're moving past standards. Two, you're approaching. Two is kind of the broadest camp. You know, there's people that it's like, I can see there's like a light at the end of the tunnel, and there's people that it's like, you're basically like a step away from being there. Um, and then one is you're not there. Um, so how do we have those fours worked out about how can kids extend their learning? And that's hard. It's hard to plan for. It's hard to hard for kids to show that. But that's where we need to have good work samples for kids and and. Um, and so that's the fourth, the fourth question. I won't spend a lot of time on that here just because of the time we have, and I want to say a couple last things. Um, a lot of schools will say, hey, we're a PLC school, um, and then we say, how do your teams operate? Do you kind of get together and just kind of have a grand old time? Are you actually looking at student performance? Are you talking about the skills and standards that kids need? Why things didn't work out the way they were supposed to? How we can extend learning? And that's what we call PLC light. And um, there's been a lot of studies that have been done that allude to people that would say, hey, we're doing PLC. Probably 70 to 80% of those schools are considered plc light. That it's more of kind of a name that we have, but the traction of PLC really isn't occurring. Um, this was the resource here for the singletons. Aaron Hansen, how to develop PLCs for singletons in small schools. Um, this is a great resource. It's 10 bucks. Um, and you could read it driving, you know, driving the car for an hour or you're riding along. It's, it's a super easy read. So like this year, um, I talked about the ELA standards that we were working on. So these are the five different, uh, there's one below that I'm thinking on here, um, that we're talking about these reading comprehension skills that are being taught in all of our different um, sections in junior high outside of math. And so Everybody's bringing in the ideas of me, idea, author's purpose, summarizing facts, um, facts and um, details, and bringing that into their content to teach it well. Um, for you know some of the folks like band, choir, you do have to reach outside of your circle. That's the hardest one to make PLCs for. Um, the last thing I want to share um, before you guys take off is just some great resources for your school. Um, the, the two books, if you're thinking about like where do we start, how do we get going, um, the first one is Learning by Doing. Um, and this, this was um, this written by DeFore, I believe. It's written by DeFore. 
Um, and that's a great place to start. It asks a lot of these questions in a lot better way than I said them. Um, kid by kid, skill by skill, another great resource. Um, if you get into kind of the standard-based um, world, I have a great um, resource um, through Garnett Hillman is her name. She worked at a school in Illinois as a, science, as a Spanish teacher. Um, if you're looking at kind of any sort of professional development, um, she was one of the co-authors for this book, Standards, um, Standard-Based Learning in Action. Um, she's great. Um, Garnett Hillman, she's based out of Chicago. And then this other book by Marzano. Um, I had mentioned already the Global PD. It's a great resource to get awesome tools. It's really cost effective. But something that will radically change your educational life is to go to the PLC Institute. Um, has anyone been before by chance? Okay. And it, it will just rock your world. And it's I, I kind of use the phrasing, you know, once you drink the Kool-Aid, um, you're it will rock your world, just don't be the only one from your school. For you need to go with a group. Go with a group, have discussion. Um, Lincoln, like Lincolnshire, uh, we went to Detroit a couple years ago. Our, our school goes every year. Um, there's one that's happening in Detroit, I believe, in July. Um, this does fill up, you know, by March it will be sold out. So um, just think about that. And, um, you know, like for our school, we'll be sending 14 people next year. And you know, you kind of leave, and sometimes you leave with more questions than, than answers, but it just continues the process. So I really encourage this, and Bob Payne, he didn't know that I wrote his name down, but he now works with us um, with Solution Tree. Um, he was the former superintendent at Chicago Christian, and he's the one that brought this to Highland Christian, and um, he is, he's the man. So, the man. he's the man, so. So you're gonna give us access to that? Yeah, there you go. So the bit.ly is active. Um, if you need anything, feel free to reach out. I do not claim to be the expert. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like I stumbled into just some really great, a great thing that was going on and just feel so blessed to work alongside so many committed, committed educators. Um, a lot of information, so thanks for bearing with me. Um, I know we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're past our time, um, but if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to chat. So thank thanks, you. Guys.